What do you believe is at the center of Pan's Labyrinth? Your mom. Thank you. I Good sometimes evening, goals. regret knowing either of you. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because they're Good. too funny. Period. Good can evening, you, goals. Can you imagine who we would be if we had not met each other, Alec? We'd probably be upstanding citizens. I'd probably be a lot more handsome. I think I would probably be a senator by now. I think Easily. I would be a domestic terrorist in the state in which he served. As if he isn't one of those right now. Good evening, ghouls. Good evening, ghouls. <laughs> Good evening, ghouls. My name is Alec, and in my mid-twenties, I discovered I was a domestic terrorist. Uh, and also media <laughs> illiterate. To get caught up, I joined the Undead Poet Society, an underground terrorist cell, and you can tell the FBI that, um, <laughs> ruled by uh, our two flesh-eating fiduciaries, Robert hey, and Becca. <laughs> if you haven't read or watched today's subject, go to your homework to avoid spo- spoilers and see if you share our takes or violently disagree. And uh, when we're done, we'll raise our experiences from the dead into poems of varying quality. Today, we are talking about a little movie you might have heard about in the last 40 seconds called Pan's Labyrinth. By the famous Ballistic Gel Torso. (laughs) It's funny that you mentioned Flesh Eaters and Guillermo del Toro in the same breath. Because I just finished uh, writing a paper about uh, Night of the Living Dead as like a memory artifact. And uh, Guillermo del Toro has an uh, interview with uh, George A. Romero, whose movie Night of the Living Dead was originally going to be called Night of the Flesh Eaters. So there's also, some lateral reading for you, bitches. If any of you are <laughs> under the impression that Guillermo del Toro has not eaten human flesh, you are sadly mistaken. You ever seen Guillermo del Toro? <laughs> that fool is eating so much human flesh. He gives me he he gives all big boys a good name. Shout out. Shout out. Do you want to elaborate on that? He's a big boy. He is a big boy. And he's a great director. Got it. So okay. he gives us a good name. <laughs> I thought it was clear. <laughs> we were just talking about flesh eaters and, and I was like, what do you mean by that? Do you wanna He's a big boy? He is so a big boy. Are all big Alec boys are flesh big eaters? Boys. They are in I a just, sense, at least all metaphorically. All I said was that he gives us a good name. I said nothing about flesh eaters. <laughs> don't lump me in with his ilk. Who's doing the summary? Not me. Your I don't mom. Fucking this movie. Okay, I'll do it. Because I don't want to dignify Becca. Um, we are in fascist Spain during... I think World War II. I don't know. Spain's history is kind of left out of the greater World War II experience. It feels World War II-y. People are running around on horses uh, and the like. fascist Spaniards are waving around like German Lugers. uh, And it all feels very Nazis, except they speak Spanish. Um, But we follow uh, to this kind of country estate... Uh, Ophelia, who is this very young, lively, imaginative girl uh, who very much loves her mother, uh, and her mother is shown to be pregnant as basically as soon as we meet her. 
um, they, uh, her mother has recently married or remarried um, to a uh, El Capitan, a, a like a captain in the fascist Spanish military. Uh, and she's basically just being used by this fascist as like a vessel uh, by which to get a son. That's like his big thing is that he he wants a son to whom he can give his father's name. And it's this very fascist machismo. Um, I'm going to have a boy no matter what like type vibe. Uh, however, when we get to this country estate, we realize that there are two things that are not what they seem. Um, one, there are certain members of the house staff that seem to be uh, in cahoots with local insurrectionists, like some anti-fascist uh, guerrilla fighters who are in the region. And uh, also, Ophelia uh, is kind of like wandering around and finding these strange stone carvings, and behind the house finds a labyrinth, a very old, overgrown labyrinth uh, that looks like it's been there for like a thousand years. Uh, there's kind of two different main stories that then play out from that point. Um, the more fantastical one is the one in which Ophelia goes to the center of the labyrinth and meets the fawn, uh, this kind of whimsical, but also kind of terrifying looking, Very uh, terrifying. like beast Very. man type thing at the center of the labyrinth. Um, he tells Ophelia that she is not actually, uh, a, a human daughter of human parents, but is instead the princess, like, fairy daughter of a supernatural king who's been waiting for her rebirth into the world and uh, that she needs to complete certain tasks in order to rejoin her royal parents in the, in, in the other world. Um, parallel to that story, we're getting the drama of, uh, like, that's happening around the adults with the staff members that are helping out the uh, resistance movement and the captain who is trying to destroy them and uh, like rooting out the traitors in his midst. Um, as the two storylines kind of coalesce towards the end, um, Ophelia fails one of her uh, magical challenges uh, and is threatened by the fawn with like exile, basically like you're never going to, rejoin your royal family in the other world uh, and things fall apart for the 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 members of staff who are helping the insurrection um, the doctor for example uh, it, who's been taking care of Ophelia's pregnant mother um, is found to uh, be one of the collaborators because he executes or or really mercy kills one of the captured insurrectionists so that he doesn't have to be tortured anymore and can't give up information. Um, and then uh, one of the uh, the maids who's very close with Ophelia is then revealed to be uh, the brother of one of the lead insurrectionists. Um, this all culminates in a night of violence in which the insurrectionists attack the fascists. Um, by this point, Ophelia's mother has died, but in doing so has given the fascist a son. Um, and so the the battle is happening all around them and the fawn convinces Ophelia uh, that everything will be right if he can if she can just bring a, like the, the child, like the baby, to the center of the labyrinth. And our initial meeting of the fond kind of like led you to believe that he was like just like whimsical and and uh, and, and happy and, and wholesome. Uh, but more and more, there are like certain like you can tell 
that he's very unsubtly like trying to hide things and uh there's like a, a magical knife involved and uh the the point at which he says to like bring a baby to the center of the labyrinth is the point at which we know like oh something horrible is afoot in the fantastical side of the story um Ophelia uh, poisons the fascist uh, with one of his uh, with one of his own shot glasses, uh, takes his son and then runs into the labyrinth. Um, and then the fascist kind of like drunkenly stumbles after her while the insurrectionists are attacking the countryside manor. Uh, she gets to the center of the labyrinth. The fawn uh, tries to get her to hand over the child. Uh, like claim, like he's, he's got the magical knife and he's claiming like, oh, it's, we just need like a pin prick of blood. Uh, she knows that that's not the case and she refuses to, um, her fascist stepfather, uh, finally gets to the center of the labyrinth with her and doesn't see the fawn. So it's possible that this is all only in her head. There's some, there are some indications that that's not the case. Um, but he then shoots Ophelia and takes his son back, uh, and this is basically where the story ends. He exits the labyrinth to find that the insurrectionists have won, that he is the last fascist standing. They take his son and then uh, his like he he tries to do this little uh, grand like noble death thing where like tell my Come son my that his son. father died standing and tell him what time it was and give him my father's name. And he's just completely denied by the anti-fascists. Like they're just like, no, we're, we're not even going to tell him what your name was. Uh, so and then he satisfying. is fine. Yeah, very gratifying, and that line specifically was delivered by the maid, who he's serially underestimated because she's a woman, um, among other things. Uh, and then he is ignominiously, <laughs> ignominiously, ignominiously, whatever. He's killed like a bitch um, by the insurrectionists as like the last fascist standing, uh, and then they go to the center of the labyrinth to find. Uh, that he killed Ophelia while he was in there. Um, however, we also get this little bit where Ophelia's spirit, may, like maybe this is just like a fantasy that she's concocting while she's dying, kind of like the whole life flashing before your eyes. But we also get shots where she seems to have somehow reached the other side with her uh, like supernatural royal parents who sit on these crazy thrones and are surrounded by these like fairy type creatures the fawn comes out and he's like more young and beautiful than he was when we originally met him and very happy <laughs> yeah kind of kind of like says that like this was a test um and that your unwillingness to shed the blood of your younger brother and shedding your own blood instead was the was the true way to pass the test and so now she's going to live with them forever in the other world um depending on your interpretation of how like actually like whether or not the magic stuff was actually happening this could be a happy ending cuz this that's what Ophelia wanted she wanted to to escape the brutal world that she was in and uh and join her royal magical parents on the other side um or if it was all just a fabrication like a, a little fantasy world that she was imagining in order to uh escape the reality around her um, then it's very tragic because she's basically just murdered by her fascist stepfather. I mean, um, yeah, it was. Uh, it's it's a it's a it, it's it a, ride. a movie. It, <laughs> there's can it, a lot going on. Can it not be both though? Um, just 
based on your perspective at all like for ophelia she's the one dying she's the one experiencing that i don't like those answers those so, are like coward answers <laughs> i don't think so i don't know i because think it's one it, or the other her, i think you need to make a choice for her it's the real it's the real thing because she's the one perceiving it so ophelia gets the happy ending but everyone other than ophelia gets this tragic ending because they've just seen a child die and is that not like kind of how it is with everything like you either win or you lose and you're either on the winning side or the losing side and if you're on the winning side you're happy because you've won but you don't see like what you don't want to see or what you can't see if that makes sense yeah i i don't know for me i don't think any of it happened um i think it was all in ophelia's head the only evidence, like, I, I, I did a little scan through the movie, uh, and none of the magical stuff, except for Ophelia's, like, absences and stuff, uh, seem to, like, uh, they, they don't seem to interlap with any of the, like, the physical, at, like, actually real goings-ons, with the exception of how she got out of her locked room with the chalk. That's the only thing I can think of that uh where the magical fantasy stuff seems to have made a direct actual difference on the physical stuff that is quote-unquote real happening around her yeah but i i do agree with becca that i don't think it really matters at the end of the day um because the story that wasn't meant to be told was told um i don't think and I don't know. I like. I don't necessarily think it's fruitful to like explore. Like, is it real or is it not? You know what I mean? Because at, at least if I think it's fruitful, yeah. and the fruit I choose is no. Well, there you go. Definitive. And I will not be elaborating further. <laughs> Homie Good just goals. flipped a coin. <laughs> um, what do we think? I really enjoyed it. Um, for some really specific reasons. I can go first if we want. Yeah, go ahead. Um, well, my notes were all on my PC, and my PC is having a little tummy ache, I guess. Um, and it's not booting up. But um, I, in particular, I paid a lot of attention to the sound design. Um, Great sound and design. And the, the parallels that there were. I mean, we talked a lot about the the creaking leather and the creaking wood and i think that there were a lot of things especially those things like in particular that were um purposely contrasted in order to show like the different worlds um and it was really interesting um i guess i'll focus on those two things in particular there were a lot of other sounds like the um clopping of the hooves of like the horse's hooves um, contrasted with the squelching of the mud, things like that when she's crawling through the tree. But I guess in particular, um, the one that I noticed the most and that kept changing, but like not really changing, it just like more was revealed to us, was the creaking of the leather, like um, the captain's leather and the creaking of the fawn, the the wood that was the fawn. Um, those two things 
felt they were really purposefully contrasting to me um because it, you have the the captain who is just like obviously outright very evil very awful person he kills people with like on a whim and then later finds out evidence of their innocence and shoots people in the head twice to make sure that they've actually died and doesn't care for the wife of his or the life of his of the woman he married um and only cares about the child she's burying whether or not it really is a son he doesn't even know um he's just kind of psycho and then you have the fawn who at first when we meet him is really whimsical and really inviting and Ophelia really loves him and it, and is willing to do whatever he's telling her but then as the story goes on um you kind of get this sense that he might not have her best interests in mind um and sort of by the end becomes more like the father but he's not trying to save the son he's trying to kill the son um and then you have like the creaking of the leather itself like breaking it down to the elements like it's much less natural than um than the wood of the fawn even though leather is made from organic materials it's not used organically you know like it's used to it's processed yeah yeah well it's processed and then also it's kind of like especially in this film um it's a sign of power and of wealth and of control um whereas the wood on the fawn is more like it's creaky it's organic it's it's natural it's it's in it's more inviting because it's not it doesn't feel like like when you think of leather you think of someone's like in whatever way you want to take it being punished and um but with like the fawn it just sounds like the forest or like the wind in the trees um or like a boat on the ocean i don't know things like that um which just like very contrasting like you're, you're really nervous around the captain because he's a really evil person and then you're really relaxed when you hear like the creaking of the the wood on the fawn um until it becomes more like ominous towards the end but i thought that was in particular was really important um and then i wanted to talk about another part of the sound design too if you, but if you guys had anything that you wanted to say about that. I remembered while you were talking that I claimed earlier that the chalk was the only time at which the magical affected the physical. And that's uh, hugely untrue because of the mandrake under the bed. Uh, whether or not that actually did something is up to debate. But this is just something I can see someone who saw the movie being like, well, that's not <laughs> correct. So I just wanted to mention that I remembered that particular part um but yeah like i i think del toro's a, a baddie I, I i really like the movie um i like his general theme of like that seems to happen in all of his movies that um outer beauty is not always the same as inner beauty you know uh that ugly things can be good and uh beautiful things can be bad 
uh, and the the monster work is just tight. Like I I, I I'm I'm a smooth brain. I like me some creepy ass, gross ass, uh, original ass monsters. Like his like his, his monsters are just so uniquely Unique. like uniquely his. You know, um, like I'm thinking specifically of the skinny man. Like that like the fawn I think is a good execution on an existing idea. Um, or like the giant toad, or like the the royals at the very end are are good executions on uh, on an existing idea. But the skinny man, uh, or the or whatever the pale, the pale man, man is what called yeah, what like like, it, like he in particular, like Del Toro does such a good job of creating monsters where there were none. Like he's not like you see this more in some of his other movies, but like creating genuinely new monsters that feel like they could have existed forever, but kind of haven't until he managed to think them up. You know what I mean? Like the, like the skinny legs and the flabby body and the, the eyeless face because the eyes fit into his hands and the ink stained fingers. Like it's, it's just so creepy and uh, horrible. And I love me some, some just well executed monster work. And this is a good example of a movie that like has aged, I think really, really well um, yeah. for having come out in like, what was it? Like 2006 or something? No, I don't even remember. Mm-hmm. This movie could have looked like such ass if, it, you know what I mean? Like, like, so, uh, like so many other things that came out at the time. Um, But uh, his, his dedication to mixing practical with special effects um, which I think still holds true now. I still like still think is is the best way to go. Um, but he he really committed to it at that time. It's aged great, uh, and that's also in part because he he made sure to use it in specific instances where uh, it it best served the story and uh, and just looked really good. Like he's just got an eye for it. It just looks really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I'm not a huge Del Toro guy. Like not just I I'm just not very familiar with him. It's kind of a uh, blind spot for me. Um but I mean I you know you 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 watch anything with him and you can see why they call him like the father of monsters, you know what I mean? And I think that's really important. I think monsters are very interesting. There's actually a uh a lecture series on Audible called American Monsters that I highly recommend people listen to. Um, very, very cool, very interesting. Um, and the way that monsters interact with Americans in specific, I think, is very interesting. I think that in a lot of ways you can measure um, time periods in America by whatever monster is most dominant in uh, their media. Especially like, uh, you know, like the uh, the zombie is something that I'm pretty familiar with right now because I've just, like I said, I just wrote a paper about it. And so you can really track like trends in culture and politics by tracking the how many zombie movies are uh, hmm. are uh, being produced. I'll actually, I'll if I I'll try to remember to put on the Patreon. There's this really cool chart that shows when zombie movies and stuff were like most popular and the different times and stuff. And it's really interesting because you can track like, okay, big spike right here because Nixon was elected or big spike right here because JFK was assassinated. And you know, 
I think it's really interesting, like, how, or w- what you can see about humanity through our monsters, and uh, Guillermo del Toro, he's just got a, he's got an eye for it, you know what I mean? He can see the ugly things about humanity and personify them into these creatures that are, like you said, truly unique, but somehow horrifyingly familiar, you know what I mean? Um. <clears throat> I will continue talking about sound design <laughs> if you'll let me. Yeah, sorry. You asked yeah. if we had something to say, so I thought... Yeah, we were... no, 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 you're good. Um, I meant specifically about that, but um, that's all good. I... It wasn't even particularly about that anymore. I, like... I wanted to talk more about the music, um, particularly... The, <clears throat> I guess it's not even just like a, a thing specific to this movie, but um, the importance of movement with sound in, um, in cinema, like um, Guillermo del Toro is very good at um, knowing when to move with the music, um, in particular, the one that always comes to mind, like when I think about this, is when the general, or not the general, the captain, they're out in the woods, I can't even remember, it was in my notes, but he like puts his arm down with the music, like it's like the strings are being almost plucked. Almost like he's like, directing it. Almost, yeah. And I think it's a really important um part of cinema is like being a filmmaker is knowing how to use that movement um and then particularly with the music i found it really enchanting and um beautiful that the um music the i guess um the musical motif for mercedes and ophelia was mercedes lullaby and the way that it fit in with her singing it, um, that it was being played like as a musical, like, I don't even know if, like overture. And then, Motif. and then she starts singing it like with the music. Um, like, does that make sense? It was playing in the background, like, we're hearing it and then she starts singing it and like the harmonies are there and everything i thought it was really beautiful um very well done and that continued throughout the film i really loved it i will say though that this kind of story is not very appealing to me um (laughs) we talked a lot about the kind of story it is (laughs) while we were watching it yeah i don't know i'm i just something about like the fairy tales and like folk like lore doesn't really catch me a lot of times um yeah i don't know that's that's pretty much my only criticism it's like it's a it's a great movie i just don't know if it's my movie you know what i mean yeah i don't know uh, i i almost feel the i re- i really liked it i just don't know how much i have to say about it beyond the fact that i liked it um i thought that the monsters were cool and I dig uh, when fascists die in movies. Mm. Uh, beyond that, like I, I don't know. I just think it was a, 
a, a generally good movie. It, it didn't really like change my thoughts or feelings about anything. It, it didn't like shake up my top 10. I don't think. Yeah. I no, need to look me. at that. Um, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a good movie. I, I don't know. Maybe I need more hot takes. Did anybody like specifically dislike anything in it or about no. it? I know that it traumatized you. So yeah. Oh yeah. I, I mentioned this during the watch through, but I, I accidentally, my, my, I had very, uh, sheltering parents, uh, but I w- managed to accidentally sneak this movie past their, uh, censorship, uh, I, I didn't realize that it was rated R. I just saw like the cool cover art on the box. Uh, and then I watched it alone up until the point where the fascist captain grabs the uh, rural farmer son and uh, just bashes his head in with a wine bottle, I think it was, or yeah. a beer bottle or something like that. And just turns his head into a bloody pulp and then executes them both at gunpoint. Um, yeah, that was a, that was a trip and a half for, for little Alec. <laughs> probably like seven years old or some shit i think you were a particularly sensitive as a child too because of how like i was a very your sens- parents were Spe- or- there was okay how many of you remember tony hawk pro skater 2 more specifically <laughs> how many of you remember the opening credits of tony hawk pro skater 2 there are a few different little uh cinemat like little like animations i guess you would call them and in one of them there's a guy who's kind of like going up and down a half pipe, but at the set or, or maybe on some ramps or something. I haven't seen it in a really long time, but there is a manhole cover, um, which is kind of like moved aside by something with tentacles underneath. Uh, it grabs the skateboarder as he's going and kind of like, you know, like the movie, like kind of like yank, uh, yeah. but not completely. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you've got like the hands on the floor and like the, ah, and then he like gets pulled down under uh, and then a, a whole skeleton, gets like thrown up uh like like he's been eaten <laughs> like like flash eaten and then the manhole i think it's like replaced by the tentacles i kid you not that shit kept me up at night that shit <laughs> fucked me up like i like i i i was very i was a very religious child i remember very specifically praying to god that he would take <laughs> the memory of that animation away from me <laughs> oh my god I There's was very so few. very distraught. <laughs> There's very few times that I can remember, like actually just like crying out to God. <laughs> and one of them was um, when my pet lizard Helaman died. I was so angry that I wailed and shook my fist in the air and said, "Why, God? Why?" But the other time was a little movie called Mirrors, which I doubt oh, we'll ever talk about on the podcast because it's a bad movie. But the uh, general premise is that there was like a insane asylum where there was a person who was actually uh possessed but they thought that they were just mentally ill and they had like this uh like thing where it was like called mirror therapy or something and they would just trap them in a room filled with mirrors no good like the, so that they could observe how crazy they're acting, and then they'll stop. <laughs> but the demons just like transferred from the person into the mirrors, and then like the conceit of the movie is someone broke those mirrors, and now the demons are free, and they're going around and just like if they kill you in the reflection, then whatever happens in the reflection happens in real life. You know, mirror and demon shit, huh? 
you know, mirror demon shit, as you do. Mirror demon shit, yeah, as one does. But I remember watching the movie, I was like, wow, that movie was ass. Went back, I watched it with my friend Jesse, dropped Jesse off, went home, didn't think much of it, go upstairs, go to the bathroom, I'm washing my hands, and as I reach up to turn off the light, I catch my reflection's eye, and I just stare at it. <laughs> and I'm just staring <laughs> at myself in the fucking mirror, and I have no idea what to do, and I was like, please go. God, <laughs> like, I don't, like, I need you to deliver me out of this situation. And the worst part was, you don't want to turn the lights off, because when you turn the lights off, it's dark, and, you know, that's scary. Scary. But with the lights on, everything, I could see my reflection in everything, the doorknob, the TV screen, like, everything that was shiny, I could see my reflection. And so I didn't know what to fucking do, <laughs> because I saw, like, there was no Damn. good choice, and that fucked me up. That was a bad night. Anyways, I cannot Tangent. remember specific times calling out to God because I did it often because <laughs> I'm scared of everything. Quinge. <laughs> quinge praying to God is quinge. Well, <laughs> well, ghouls, I think this discourse has run its course. Uh, you might even say that episode. it is dead <laughs> and buried, and now we are going to reanimate its corpse. In the form of some poems. Robert, hit the poetry sound. <laughs> I think I'm ready, but I want to uh, preface it by saying I don't know if this is actually good. Normally, I, I feel myself uh, when I write poetry. I, I don't think to do it very often, but when I do, I, I, I usually like, ooh, yeah, look at me. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm not sure if this one's good or not. We will see. I try, I, I try to scheme is, is the problem. I don't know. We'll see. Who wants to go first, then? I'll go first. Not it. Oh, in typical Robert fashion, a haiku. <laughs> I, I clench my fingers. Nails bite deep into pupil. Wish I could unsee. Ooh. I'll go next just because if it is bad, I don't want it to be what we end on. Uh, I am putting the pressure on you, Becca, to not do that. <laughs> here we are again, circling this stone at the bottom of this well. You could say you've been here before, but you'd be lying. Keep watch and watch out. There are monsters in the night wearing the skins of men like well-ironed uniforms, smiling as they shake your hand and shoot you. Serve your country by merely dying. But lo, escape through yonder moonbeam, a twisted land of hushed sighs and silver motes, awaits beyond your mildest dreams, a place of stone and moss and stars. You'll get there while a baby's crying. The silver motes. I love the silver motes. We didn't talk Ooh. enough about silver motes. We there were a lot of motes in this movie, and I'm a big moat guy. Little little particles hanging in the air, making shit look cool. <laughs> mm -mm -mm. I don't care what I'm breathing in. I want, to, stand. Oh, I want to see shit in style. We stand the dust. We stand a dust. Okay, I guess I'll go. Did you come from the heavens? Are you sure you'll return? Has your life been wasted in... in oh, I, I gotta start. <laughs> I'm reading from this. Uh, uh, I, I don't have very good vision. Okay. Did you come from the heavens? Are you sure you're, you'll return? Has your life been wasted in the war mud? Do you yearn for true equality? 
for us all to live the same. For if this one lives, then that one lives. We'll all just die the same. Damn. Damn, son. Where'd you find this? Your mom's house. Okay, good night, ghouls. And that is what we call a circle, right back to the beginning. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Music by the great Chase, I guess. Good night. Hopefully you'll find some Love friends with some fucking original jokes. <laughs> that would be fucking sick. It'll just go back to the same audio bite whenever they can't think of something. Good night. Good night. Love good you. Night. Bye.